HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, December 14th, 2021. This is our last episode of the year, and we'll be celebrating the holidays with a few reflections on the best of 2021, but we're going to dive into a really sophisticated dessert and beer pairing. So let's introduce our guests because there's quite a lot of talent in this room, and I'm really excited to talk to everyone. So let's start with Gerard. Uh, hello, I'm Gerard Fagerberg. I'm a freelance beer writer based in Minneapolis. Uh, you've read my stuff at Beer Hunting and on the Takeout. Great. Welcome back, Gerard and Jesse. Hi, Jesse Sheehan here. I am a cookbook author and a recipe developer. I have a new baking book, an easy peasy baking book coming out um, on May 3rd. And um, I love beer. Easy peasy. And Julia, welcome back. Hello, Jimmy and all. Julia Hers, pronounced opposite of his. And I am uh, so excited to talk uh, dessert and beer. I am the executive director of the American Homebrewers Association and co-author of a couple of great resources. One includes Beer Pairing, the essential guide for the pairing pros, and then also craftbeer.com's Beer and Food Course. Wow, this is quite a bunch of talent. I'm going to start with Jesse. So Jesse, Um, Probably a year ago or sometime a long time ago, you had posted about making a Guinness chocolate cake. And I think that's how we started talking. And I always thought, gosh, it'd be so great when the pandemic's over to be in the studio (laughs) with you in Brooklyn and talk about the cake and also taste it with beer. Um, Well, now it's like quite a a ways later and we're still doing remote shows. So um, let's just tell us about you because I met you like as the vintage baker at a cool vintage bookstore. And um, how did you go from that to the, the new book that's coming? Cause sure. I, I love what you're doing. I, I, oh. I just could eat your food every day and not get <laughs> diabetes. I'm sure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Jimmy. Um, essentially the, the, I've written a couple of books. The first book was about icebox cakes. Cause I love an icebox cake, which is just a cake that never makes its way into the oven because basically you're layering cookies and whipped cream or cookies and pudding and 
popping it in the refrigerator and it miraculously turns to cake in the fridge. So that was my first book. And then The Vintage Baker, um, although sometimes people do say, Jesse, the vintage baker. I'm actually not the vintage baker. I just wrote a book called The Vintage Baker. <laughs> and that was just a collection of about 60, you know, old school kind of, you know, old fashioned recipes for baking. I'm a, I exclusively write about baking um, that I had twisted and tweaked for the 21st century, um, for the 21st century person. And Jimmy, you're exactly right. I had done a little book talk at that cool bookstore that no longer exists. Um, I think it was called Lizzie Liz Young's. Young's, yeah. Yeah. Um, in Brooklyn, not far from my home and yours. Well, actually, you're Manhattan, but you know what I mean. And um, and uh, I was doing a, a book talk there, and you and I met. And I, I can't actually remember when we talked about a chocolate Guinness cake. I've actually personally never developed one, although Nigella Lawson has an absolutely spectacular one that I have made over and over and over again. Um, but in general, I don't tend to bake with beer. I more will drink beer with something that I make, if that yeah. makes sense. No, that's fun. Well, we finally got you on, on the radio, so this is a great start. And Yay. then Gerard, we 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 met through um, your Jack Kerouac article and that wonderful episode we did uh, not too long ago. It was a great time. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I mean, what is it about? I, I think today we're also going to go in that direction. I mean, you, you're you're the first beer writer that I know that's talked about working class people. And uh, that, that, that episode we did back in November, we actually got Pete Brown in, the great British beer writer. And didn't he just win uh, beer, British Beer Writer of the Year? I think he did. So he, he is sure great. Did, we yeah. can say he's great. But that that was just so such a great like kismet where he's working on a book about British working class clubs. Um, so you, your other article that you wrote, I want you, I asked you about you know best beers or best stories of the year, and you shared one, and it's about a union brewer. Um, just tell us your your feelings on that because you don't hear too many people talking about unions. Although many of us had parents that were in unions. Yeah. And, you know, my dad is one of them. My dad grew up as a, a, or I grew up as the son of a father who was in a union elevator technician. You know, everyone in my family was in the trade. Uh, and so it's something that was taught to respect at a very young age. I was getting a job at 14 grocery store. And my dad called me a scab because I got a job at the non-union grocery store. So <laughs> <laughs> lifelong education and, and the piece that you're referring to is a very brief profile on um, a man named uh, Andrews Bloomquist who is the shop steward at Fair State uh, co Brewing Co-op which is a, a cooperatively owned union brewery here in Minneapolis uh, it's the smallest craft brewery or union craft brewery in the United States um, and they have a beer that is called Union Lager which is made in collaboration with the August Shell Brewing Company, which is in New Ulm, Minnesota, one of the historic breweries in America and also the only other union brewery in Minnesota. So these two union breweries came together. They made this Dortmunder-style lager sort of in, in that spirit of solidarity. And I love it. And I think it's a great conversation starter for, you know, the sort of class awareness in the craft beer world because it is certainly something that has dissipated as capitalism is sort of turned on. And um, if you... I have to make a plug now. If you ever want to read more about you know this sort of rising uh, worker um, uh, consciousness in in the craft beer and spirits world, I would definitely recommend the the fingers 
newsletter by Dave Infante. He writes about this a lot, and he's actually the person who had initially written about Fair State that I worried about uh, Anders Bloomquist from. So I'm going to I'm going to second you. you on that. I somehow I, I discovered him from uh, what's it called Stack Substack. Yeah, he's yeah. He's been been in Substack. Been like, yeah. Honestly, I'm a subscriber right now to to the fingers, uh, Dave Infante. So that's great. Yeah. And now Julia, so um, you are like. To me, you represent craft beer in America. <laughs> um, I know you've you've been doing this since you started homebrewing or something when you were twenty one. But um, for, for me, or you've all, you've been the go to person for you know beer and food pairing. I mean, for many of us, like when we started, it was like Garrett Oliver and the Brewmasters Table. Um, but but for you, you work at, previously at the Brewers Association. You really you really um, made a name for yourself as talking about beer and food. Um, can you tell us about those books you wrote and the work you did and working with guys like Adam Dulia, who I've met through you? Sure. And Jimmy, you and I go way back and, and hats off to you, my friend, who I've followed and cheer, cheerleaded for all your work in beer and what you've done for you know the New York scene and then nationally and now globally is to be commended, friend. And so you're a total charmer in how you introduce me. I'm, I'm really... <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm a home brewer and beer lover that just gets to have, you know, some of the greatest gigs in the world um, and, and having three tours of duty now at the National Association, being the Brewers Association, and now most recently as the executive director of the American Home Brewers Association. And so I've always just uh, been able to use the platform that I've been given to advocate and educate on behalf of what most interests me, which is seeing the beverage of beer flourish. Um, and, and with that behind the scenes, I selfishly get to learn more and, and geek out like the rest of us. And so two of the publications that I've um, co-authored is uh, craftbeer.com's Beer and Food Course with Chef Adam Dooley, who you, who you mentioned, Jimmy, and that is available um, as well today, uh, which just went into uh, from hardbound to paperback now is Beer Pairing, um, the Pairing Guide from the Pairing Pros, which I co-authored with Gwen Conley, who is um, a maverick herself in the in the beer and beverage world. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I was I was looking through my notes and, um, you know, your new news, congratulations on the new position. And I know that in January, we're going to do a, a, a focus show just with you and the American Homebrew Association. It was back way back episodes. If you if, if you look at our archive, this is a time to plug what Heritage Radio Network is, go back on Beer Sessions Radio way back when, episode 64, May of 2011. It's the first time we had you on, Julia, and you talked about just how beer and food interact. Um, you want to tell us about like the, the basics of it? Because I think in this show, we're gonna the holidays are coming up. We want to talk about pairing some beers with some of Jesse's um, kind of snack drawer desserts. Sure, I'll try to be succinct and uh, reel me in if I if I go off the rails. But I really think in the squishy world, right, of pairing, because um, preference is uh, personal. So too then is pairing on what you're going to like the best of what beverage goes with what food. Um, it is helpful to understand some of the principles and the way I verbalize what I have kind of grounded myself in over these years. Here's three top level ones of them. One is uh, you know flavor. Flavor is a fusion. It's a fusion of three things. Uh, basic tastes, which are sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, emerging is oleogustus, um, and a few other things on that basic taste list. And then there's aromatic compounds, right? What we would uh, 
sends through our ortho and retronasal uh, um, receptors, our, our nose. Uh, and then there's mouthfeel. Mouthfeel is a huge component to me. When I was pregnant, I loved frozen Snickers, right? Um, <laughs> I, hate a, I hate a Caesar unless I'm going to get crispy greens um, served to me with those crunchy uh, you know, croutons that are also a part of it. So those three things together, flavor being a fusion of basic taste, aromatic compounds, and mouthfeel, if you can ground yourself in those concepts, it's a game changer. And then you start to think about, okay, now I understand flavor. Let me try to describe it. And then how does flavor of the beverage to flavor of the food interact with each other? And lexicon like bridges, hooks, links, echoes, right? A lot of the wine world uses those terms, and I certainly think that they make a lot of sense. Um, and then, you know, for interactions, uh, you're really going to try to pay attention to how you feel about them. But often trying to describe pairing is like talking about a dream you wake up in the morning, you, 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 know, you roll over and try to journal it or, or share your significant other, the story of what you're dreaming about. And as soon as you try to put words to it, it kind of uh, you know, sifts through like a, a sieve when you're draining pasta. It's really hard to hold on <laughs> to the notion, right? So what I, I try to do is yeah, right. ground it in, um, in the direction of the following three things. Was the pairing a, a home run? One plus one equals five. The interactions between the beer and the food were made each other better, right? Or was it a middle of the road? Beer didn't make the food better, food didn't make the beer better, but there was nothing displeasing. And frankly, that's the majority of pairings that I'm presented. And then the last piece is, is I would describe a negative experience, ooh, didn't like that, um, as a, you know, kind of a train wreck. They definitely made each other worse. There was a, um, a clash uh, in my palate that I was perceiving, and this is what I didn't like about what I tasted. If you can get those concepts down, you're way ahead of the game in uh, in pairing. Yeah. So let's go to Gerard. So Gerard, um, I know we've talked a lot about beer and other things. Is there a food and beer pairing or even a holiday dessert type pairing that, that you've experienced or that you like to tell us about? You know, it's, it's funny. My, my wife is Jewish, so we're kind of going through this um, – negotiation right now of like how we celebrate each individual holiday. And one thing I think I realized is that I don't really have uh, the Christmas eating tradition. You know, it's not something that I've really developed in my family. I mean, it's not very consistent, but I have found a really deep love and appreciation for latkes and lagers. I think that actually, it sounds beautiful <laughs> together. So like a little bit of applesauce, sour cream, and then you give yourself a nice crispy Czech style or, or German style Lager, I think it, it's a beautiful, beautiful companion. And how about p pick one of those lagers for us? Maybe a Minnesota lager. Uh, I I really love the lagers that are coming out of uh, Falling Knife, which is in Northeast. Um, I just had a couple of their lagers yesterday, and then one I think that has been really fantastic. That was the other beer I really wanted to talk about. It's called Royal Squabble. It's like a um, it's a lager that's made with Meyer lemon, and also um, it's got some gin barrel-aged components to it. So it's a little bit like a gin and tonic, but it's that bready lager, and I think it's a nice, fun, kind of festive. You get that juniper-y kind of flavor in it. Pretty good for the holidays. And that Royal Squab, is that also from Falling Knife? Yeah, that's it's it's a Falling Knife lager. I think it's one of, of their better ones, for sure. I will say, that's that must be one thing great about being in a, a different state and everything, and and Julia, you you can, I'm sure you can weigh in on just how diverse and interesting the different 
beers and breweries are in America now, just even by state or region. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's kind of crazy. It's amazing. Yeah, there's more than a, 160 beer styles documented by the Brewers Association. Um, beer Judge Certification Program has a uh, 100 plus, and and it's and it's regional, right? You've got these regional specialties that are um, taking advantage of the barrel or the or the oak or wood in that area. Um, taking advantage of pecans in the South to make pecan brown ales, uh, taking advantage of fruits in certain areas. It's it's um, wonderful to see terroir finally be a part of the conversation for beer. Great. So as we build up to our, our dessert and beer pairing challenge, <laughs> I want to throw out some questions just for fun because it's kind of end of the year. Um, I've been able to experience some really interesting projects. Um, that are related to beer, and we've covered them in Beer Sessions Radio this year. Um, I'll share one. One of them is called the Sail Freight, and it's uh, there's a boat called Schooner Apollonia, and it made some voyages this year down the Hudson River. Often it was carrying uh, as much as 12,000 pounds of malt uh, from the Hudson Valley malt, which is using local ingredients. That, to me, is one of the coolest projects because it combined, like, climate awareness and sail power, but also it was bringing malt directly um, to brewers and and distillers up and down the Hudson River. So for me, that was a really cool project. And, and we, we did cover it earlier. And that's definitely an episode worth listening to. I don't know if anyone else has a project or type of thing related to beer that they, they think is worth shouting out. Um, what about you, Julia? Anything going on in the homebrew world that you must think is worth shouting out to? Well, I'll talk about the Brave Noise recipe that has uh, been awesome. put together. Yeah, I mean, um, Jen Blair, who's a prolific commercial brewer, uh, Ash Elliott and um, Brianne Allen, who really kicked off the whole refreshing reckoning that's going on in the uh, beverage of beer and frankly now in beverage alcohol about trying to eliminate bias and shed a flashlight on those that want to be able to express that they feel like they've been subjected to bias or harassment. And so with that whole movement of Brave Noise is a beer that not only commercial brewers can make and the recipe is available uh, to just download, but also home brewers. And it's a pale ale. I'm looking to brew that potentially this Friday. So super excited to see beers, not just on the local regional um, level, reflect the ingredients of the area, but also have beers reflect the times. And a beer like this is something that really is, you know, bringing um, a, a spotlight to a topic. And the more we each have that beer or brew that beer, the more that the topic will um, hopefully grow and uh, help create change. That's great. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's, it's actually one topic we haven't talked about really much at all this year. Um, but I'm glad that you're bringing it up. And so with the homebrew recipe, in the spirit of, of the Brave Noise Project, what's your homebrew setup at home? And are you making any toasts or prayers <laughs> or wishes when you make this beer? Are you, is that tossed kind back of to dorky. me? Back to you again, Julia. <laughs> right on. Um, not sure I get the last one. Guide me along when you're ready for that. But my um, homebrew setup, and by the way, if you can uh, make soup, you can make beer. Um, if you want to get as advanced as the commercial brewers, your setup then would get more advanced like mine, which is an all-grain setup. I have uh, two very prolific, beautiful 
12 gallon um, stainless steel kettles that are the base of my um, you know, brew kettle and mash tun. And there's a false bottom in there. I brew out on my patio with Cajun cookers and uh, propane. Um, and that's nice, my nice. more advanced setup. And then I can also do kitchen top where I brew two and a half gallons at a time and just do a partial grain where I buy the extract and it's almost like dunking tea, dunking a tea bag in hot water where you're rinsing those grains in the hot water where the mash extract is and getting enhancement of flavors from those grains. Wow. So it's true. So you, you got into the industry by home brewing, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's how I started in this whole business of beer in my young 20s. Wow. Gerard, is, is there a project that kind of inspired you you'd like to mention this year? I mean, I, I would love to pick up where Julia left off at. I think, you know, the impetus for Brave, no Brave Noise is the defining story of craft beer in 2021. You can't look away from it. And um, I think we've seen it crop up everywhere. You know, I, I did a story earlier this year on, on how it's affecting places here in Minnesota. And it is just, there's no corner of the industry that is not touching. And I mean, to come back to the union beer, I think it's, it's, part of a rising sense of the the laborers in the beer industry taking agency and being able to speak for the first time in you know our modern craft beer industry about what they deserve what they want what they expect and balancing the power um, more from management back down to workers and you know my my hope is you know that breweries that were at the forefront of this call out breweries like modern times and Mickler San Diego and Boulevard even before that, that there could be a labor um, movement happen at those breweries that help could help correct this. I mean, I'm not naive to think enough that there's no such thing as um, gender-based discrimination within unions. However, I do think it's a very powerful force for writing that balance and giving consumers confidence that the people who make their beer are being treated fairly and compensated. Yeah. And I will say that the episode we did about Jack Kerouac with Pete Brown, he also we were taught we, 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 we touched on this lightly. And I mentioned the human resources issue. And he also br he brought it back to unions. He said that unions are set up. What do you say? Unions are set up to deal with these types of issues. Right. I mean, that's exactly it. Right. It, it's all about giving the laborers collective bargaining power and the ability to speak freely without fear of retaliation. And I think, you know, the, the biggest criticism of this, this craft beer reckoning has been that people have come out anonymously and on the internet, which I think is a totally invalid criticism because there is no way for these people to come forward and to be taken seriously and to have their voice heard. And we've seen, you know, for decades now, women coming forward and say, this person made me feel unsafe. This person touched me inappropriately and it being dismissed because the person that was perpetuating that behavior was in a position of power. And as Pete said, you know, the, the labor unions exist to help write that power and to protect employees from retaliation for speaking freely about their experiences. Well, so like at the higher levels of society, you may have able to hire a lawyer, for example, and represent yourself when someone, you know, does not treat you fairly. But this is, I'm, I'm glad we touched on this because uh, it's kind of been bothering me all year. And I, I feel like what is the answer? And, um, you know, maybe unions or that type of, I don't know, man. Um, but did you just start thinking about unions this year, Gerard? Have you, have you wanted to write more about it in your career? 
You know, I, it's something I would never even thought to have expected from craft beer until um, really the end of 2019, which is when everything kind of started to happen. That's around the time that Anchor's team, they, they had their, um, they had signed union cards and then later that union was ratified and then they signed, you know, they set their contracts and everything. And that sort of started uh, precipitation across the industry. And it's actually been very strong here in Minneapolis and where we see um, distilleries like Tattersall and um, Denord Craft Spirits unionizing and Tattersall being the first, you know, craft distillery unionizing immediately thereafter. Um, Fair State, you know, pushing to unionize and then having management voluntarily accept the union, which was in stark contrast to Surly, who months before had had a lot of union busting allegations after their staff wanted to unionize. And this was all, again, exacerbated by COVID. So um, for me, I mean, as someone even who grew up in a union family, this is something that has emerged into my consciousness recently. And now I, all I think about, <laughs> I certainly think about it a lot. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I'll go back to Jesse because I've been leaving her out. But um, <laughs> um, well, let's go back to the, the easy peasy. So I did want to call you the vintage baker because that's how I met you. And it's, it's so <laughs> catchy. Um, what, what's before we dive into the new book? What, what, what's an easy peasy recipe from the vintage baker oh, that gosh. everyone should know how to make this holiday season? Well, you can fake it. <laughs> no, I, you know, I'm not going to fake it, but I'm going to pivot slightly and answer a slightly different question, which is um, uh, I, I picked two recipes from my website that aren't actually in my book, although one of both of them are going to be a, a version of each is going to be in my new book that I thought would be great for the holidays. Super easy and delicious, um, at least with the beer that I'm drinking right now, which is a um, grim butterfly door beer. Um, and one is a flourless chocolate cake, um, that is super easy to make because most, with most flourless chocolate cakes, you separate your eggs, your whites and your yolks, and then you whip your whites and then you fold them back in. Yeah. You gotta get, you gotta get peaks too, right? Um, with this particular recipe, you just use whole eggs. So it's like one of those one bowl numbers where everything gets mixed together in a single bowl in literally about two minutes, poured into a, you know, a cake pan, baked off in about 30 minutes, and voila. And, and it's and cocoa it's powder? It's, it's um, actually melted chocolate. So it's dark chocolate and butter and sugar and eggs and vanilla and salt. And that's it. And it's, um, and it's, and it's flourless to boot, like not necessarily flourless on purpose, but it just happens to be flourless. And it, because it is, it's just like this wonderfully fudgy, um, very chocolatey, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, can you tell I'm a food writer with a, with a, with a <laughs> adjective like chocolatey, um, uh, cake that is just so easy to prepare and my favorite kind of sweet is one that gets better with age. So it's great the first day you make it. But if you want to leave that on your counter wrapped up for a couple of days, it will also be great in a, in a few days. Maybe and I could I like splash a little, a little like eau de vie on it and give 100%. it a fruitcake fiber. I, I, like it with a, I like it with a dollop of um, creme fraiche, which like really nicely cuts the, the rich chocolate flavor. Um, but it's also great with whipped cream or ice cream. Um, and then I also have a recipe. And that a version of that flourless chocolate cake is in my new book, which is this easy peasy baking book called Snackable 
Bakes, 100 Easy Peasy Recipes for Exceptionally Scrumptious Sweets and Treats. Jesse, I know you're making it because now you have like the catchiest title ever that was <laughs> that's poetry. how cookbooks go right gerard it's like yeah. it's like easy peasy oh yeah that's the easy peasy lady now forget the vintage I, baker I know, that was right? like three years ago come on yeah forget her um then the second recipe that i was thinking about for the holidays in my new book it'll be a blueberry galette but on my website right now it's a cranberry galette but the galette dough is again this is the easy peasy thing the galette dough is made with oil rather than wow. with um, rather than with butter so it's a little different than a butter cr- butter crust which obviously a butter crust is amazing it's a little it's a little denser it's a little crisper it's a little crunchier but it's still incredibly Jesse, do you, do you use hot water in that I actually don't in that particular crust but yes there are hot water crusts is that what you're thinking of I've yeah I have I have my one crust recipe and it's basically there's a little oil flour and hot water and something else so Oh yum! I love it that you have an oil-based crust recipe, Jimmy. Oh yeah, that that's the old Italian uh, for love tortas that. and things. Yeah, love well, that. Of, so of the- these, of these, just just not to cut you off, of yeah. these recipes, let's say, let's go back to the flourless chocolate cake. Okay. Did you just develop that, or was that from an old recipe? I mean, you're you're baking all the time, and we we yes. I got to be on your Instagram a couple of times. Yes, I am baking all the time, and that was just something that I developed. I was inspired by other recipes. I you know everything in the end is inspired by something else. Um, I didn't invent flourless chocolate cake, in case you were wondering. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yes, they're they're all my recipes. They're not. Um, in general, besides when I was working on that on that cookbook, The Vintage Baker, and I was I was working from old recipes, I don't tend to do that on the regular. I tend to just be making things that I'm either being paid to make or that I'm choosing to make because it's something that interests me and that I want to eat. Oh, yeah. Well, this is a really cool show. And um, <laughs> I tell you what, we are going to dive into our dessert and beer pairing challenge in a few minutes we'll be back on beer sessions radio all right this episode is brought to you by roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years roberta's was founded in bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage 
Radio Network. Don't forget, it's the end of the year. Join and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Don't forget to say you listen to Beer Sessions. All right. So we're talking about end of year. We're talking about unions and the Brave Noise Project. And now we're going to talk about pairing desserts and beer. So, Julia, um, you started giving us kind of an intro to, to beer and food pairing. Um, I'm going to think of like three different ingredients and three different recipes that Jesse Sheehan has. And we're <laughs> going to try to do a pairing on air. So, um, Julia, she, Jesse was just telling us about this flourless chocolate cake. And that's a great starter because that's something that, you know, when you go to a restaurant, no matter no matter what's on the menu, if someone says flourless chocolate cake or big Texas chocolate cake, <laughs> they, you know it's going to sell. And it's usually a very high profit margin for restaurants. So um, I'm going to just jump in and say, Jesse picked the flourless chocolate cake. And how would I go about deciding what to pair? Because you're at a place, let's say you're at a, a restaurant that's got quite an extensive beer list. And um, how do you navigate that? And assuming well, you, you haven't tasted some of the beers either, that's also the challenge. Right. That's and what usually happens. Yeah. Just as today's uh, expectation is walk into any uh, fine establishment that serves wine, and often somebody on the staff can guide you along whether they're a sommelier or not. So you're going to, I think, hopefully be in good hands at most better beer providers that have an expanded draft list and the you know, back seller list of beers, because hopefully they have guides and gurus and maybe even Cicerones on staff that can, can talk you through it. Otherwise, you just go with what you want. And there's so much great beer in the world. If it's not the perfect pairing, you can either switch out the dessert or switch out the beer, right? Oh, it's true. So flourless chocolate cake, what do you think? <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and add vanilla ice cream to that. Mm. And then because I love the concept of, say, you know, uh, um, uh, the Black Forest uh, notion in the dessert range with cherries, um, I'm going to have the beer that I bring to the table bring some cherries to that flavor equation. So now you'll not only have a very dense, um, uh, rewarding, um, satisfying piece of flourless chocolate cake, and that dense factor to me is a really important component of the mouthfeel, but you've got ice cream and a little essence of cream and um, and more fat to kind of uh, counterbalance, you know, that vanilla to chocolate flavor going on. And then if you put an American Imperial Stout with cherries in it, um, and that could be literally uh, acting as the sauce over the two of those items, the, the cake itself and the ice cream. And so it's going to bring some cherry components to the flavor mix and flavor party. Uh, the dark roasted malts and, um, you know, dark cacao chocolates in that American um, Imperial Stout are really going to find bridges and echoes to the um, dark essence of uh, chocolate and flavor in the, in the cake. Um, and then that, uh, that binding element of the vanilla ice cream is really going to coat your tongue as you take a, um, take a bite of cake and ice cream together. And then you wash it all down with the sauce of uh, cherries and chocolate on top, meaning your American Imperial Stout. Wow. I know that um, on a different note, like more of a Belgian holiday beer, Trogues has a beer that, that I can't think of the name that's kind of like that. It's like a, a dark triple with a cherry thing in it. Um, is there is there a an American Imperial Stout that, that you, you can tell us about that might be good to pair with this? 
Well, are you, are you see, able to talk about certain beers? It's like you have children and you can't name your favorites. <laughs> yeah, I, I always do it with the disclaimer of there's many more that could be inserted into this example. Um, but, you know, Deschutes Brewing Company's Abyss uh, is such a, a classic, um, also barrel-influenced um, style stout. You can buy these uh, in vintage form from many passing years, and as they release it, buy a couple of bottles, try one right away, and then put it in your cellar and serve it, um, uh, store it at your cooler cellar temperatures and serve it again in two and three years and try it. But I love Abyss as one of those dark, dense, get lost in the in the bleakness of night type of beer. And, and every year there is that terroir going on of how is it performing this year? How is it affected by the the cellaring process um, at the brewery itself before even it even made it into the bottle? So that's always a great one that I love to go to. Oh, Second that great. one, absolutely. You're absolutely. on board with that, Gerard? Definitely, yes. Is, is, is there something in that style that, that um, you, you want to recommend a different beer? You know, I think that Minnesota has become sort of known for the Russian Imperial Stout um, because of Surly and Darkness. And uh, there's a brewery in Stillwater, Minnesota. They make one that's called Silhouette. It's a Russian Imperial Stout exactly like super super similar to the dishes of this and uh it is really really fantastic i recommend it if you can get it yeah julia for home brewers like how hard is it to make a like a imperial stout or a russian imperial stout um you know you really just have to account for in your uh boil kettle more room for more grains or extract so that's a thing i learned early in my uh, home brewing days is the bigger um, the uh, alcohol, it tends you tend to have more uh, fermentables. So just keep room in your in your kettle for that that bigger, burlier beer style. But it's it's not any harder than um, brewing something that is lower ABV. And I mean, you know, I had a, a cherry imperial stout that I, I bagged a um, beer, beer judge certification medal for in one of the competitions I entered, and I called it Cherry Chica Stout. <laughs> and I, I just loved it. And it was a, it was an um, partial grain. It wasn't even all grain, but it had, you know, English crystal malt, roasted barley, which isn't even a fermentable. That just adds mouthfeel. Well, often when you see a, a dark, a stout, you'll see a darker color of foam that's almost brown. That means that it had roasted barley in it. Um, and then you got, you know, your base malts that really are the fermentable of pale malt. So you can get there. The recipes are out there. Um, Homebrewersassociation.org that I'm so excited to now get my hands dirty with and um, use uh, even more of those recipes has all the clone recipes you can think of. And then also a lot of the actual style recipes from award-winning um, national homebrew competition, gold medal winners as well. Wow. So one, one thing about the competitions and especially for homebrewers, um, what style are they brewing to? Are they brewing to BJCP styles and how important is it for, for, for let's say mid-range brewers, home brewers, to really be able to, to match those style guidelines? Well, I'm a judge as well. And so if you're judging, um, you are your job is to be an instrument of what you perceive and match the style guideline descriptions sensory-wise against the flavors that are being described in those guidelines on, on with what you are physically tasting. So, you know, you can go for it. Styles don't even have to be followed or used. There's many that don't care about styles. But if you want to score well in a competition, particularly the National Homebrew Competition, which is like the Super Bowl um, to, to win in, 
Um, you really need to have game in closely matching what the style guidelines describe. And that's based on the ingredients and the brewing process that you use. Wow. Now to Jesse. Um, so I, I jumped ahead and I picked the, the flourless chocolate cake. Um, <laughs> what, what's the, the, uh, the next uh, dessert yeah. from Easy Peasy? Yeah, the other one I was thinking of, again, has this easy crust I just described, the, the oil-based crust or a melted butter-based crust. But um, it was a, it's a, it, in the book, it's a blueberry galette, but, but on my website and for Christmas or the holidays, it's a cranberry galette. So I guess, you know, it's a, it has, you know, often people don't do straight up cranberry in a dessert. They tend to mix it with maybe apples. Um, but I kind of like to just go for the cranberry, which is delicious and tart and, you know, kind of each, the berries kind of, what's beautiful about them when they bake is that they don't really collapse. So you kind of have this like gorgeous galette, which is like an, you know, an open face pie essentially, or tart. So you're talking um, about the, the galette where you kind of put the dough down, put everything in, then kind of fold, yeah, fold the crust like, over. Like a crostata, right? Is that what yeah. it is? Yeah, I think yeah. it has crostata. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the French word for crostata, essentially. But yeah, so you get to look at all of these gorgeous, like very kind of perfect, maybe slightly collapsed little, you know, cranberries covering this tart. And again, I love that with um, with vanilla ice cream, um, probably more so than than whipped cream, just because I like the cold, you know creaminess of the ice cream cutting the the very tart berries. But that was another um, fun one. What do you, this uh, is a, since we're talking desserts, I got to go to this first. In like years ago, maybe 20 years ago, and I went to some of my first like higher end restaurants, like a old school Chanterelle in, in Manhattan. The, the, the main dessert course, it seemed like every part of the dessert had ice cream. And, and I know that people love ice cream. You as a, as an author and baker, how do you feel about ice cream? Cause even Julia wanted to add the ice cream to the flourless cake. How do you feel about ice cream? as an essential component of, of desserts and particularly restaurant desserts. Well, you're asking, I'm like all about like, <laughs> I'm like good all about answer, good answer. Yeah, I mean, I'm all about condiments. Like nothing is okay. Unless it has, if it's savory, it needs sauce. It needs ketchup. It needs mayonnaise. If it's, if it's, if it's dessert, it needs whipped cream. It needs ice cream. So I, I'm a hundred percent on board with that and will, if, if I won't be like shunned and humiliated for asking, I will always ask, you know, pie that's not a la mode. It's like, is that even pie? <laughs> and then you're not going out to a restaurant, right? It's like, <laughs> all right, so but Julia, yes. so we got this wonderful cranberry galette crostata with maybe vanilla ice cream. Um, what would you pair with that? And also, so it's, it's slightly, it's not just tart cranberries, Jesse, right? It's, it's probably sweeter. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're sweet. You know, almost like it's not like cranberry sauce that you have at Thanksgiving because it's it the cranberries haven't been cooked down like that. So it's not quite that loose a filling, but it's it's like that tart sweet vibe that we all love at at Thanksgiving where we put, you know, we need we need that to cut the kind of unctuousness and the fattiness of our turkey and our gravy and our mashed potatoes. It's just imagine it in, you know, it's so it's still that kind of tart sweet, but now it's in this in this um in this kind of crispy, um, very delicious uh, crust. Yeah. Julia? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm game. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to this, and, and, and the fun, easy one is to go to Belgian-style triple. 
Um, you've got the essence of graham cracker uh, and kind of um, toasted uh, malt notes in a very light fashion, kilned, light, low kilned malt flavors that are going to find its way to the, to the crust of that Gillette. And the fact that you're using cranberries, um, that brings me to Thanksgiving. And so um, a Belgian triple is going to have, you know, those spicy phenols in uh, essence from the yeast, the Belgian yeast. And, and esters, and those deliver flavors, that yeast um, component delivers pear and apple flavors, which are going to find its way, I think, to the cranberries and, and say, hey, you know, apples can still be a part of this party type of thing. So I love it. It's also high enough in alcohol, you know, commonly uh, in the 7% range, give or take for a triple, um, and even higher, by the way, you know, up to 9%. Um, so I'm going to, you know, uh, go with that, say that it's, um, an easy sip, uh, refresh the palate every time and Belgian triples finish drier, not sweeter. So the actual, um, dessert dish is that sweet component where the beer on the other hand is not needing to, uh, make up for the, um, the sweet side of it, but bringing more of the flavor to the party. Okay. And, um, back to homebrewing recipes. So I know that some Belgian triples are traditionally made with a candied sugar but I've also heard of others that aren't. Um, I don't know if, how does, do you have a homebrew recipe for a Belgian triple? Homebrew recipe for Belgian triple is going to be mostly Pilsner malt. Um, you know, the candy sugar is really going to start to show up more so in the Belgian quads and doubles and give you those, that kind of dark caramel um, candy sugar essence. Um, you can have white candy sugar and that's more of an adjunct that'll certainly dry out that triple. But the main sugar source in any Belgian triple is going to be Pilsner malt. Okay. But so the candied sugar, is one, one of its roles is to dry it out. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a fermentable. It also can bring flavor and color to the party. I'm glad you mentioned Belgian triples because I, I just love Belgian styles, especially with food pairings. And, and I feel like it's just great to talk about it. Um, are there any American craft brewers that, that you want to mention that are, that are doing that I know I had one from LA a while ago. I think it was called West Brewing, West or Brow, Browage West, based in LA. But that had a nice Belgian triple. You're, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Victory. Victory Golden Monkey is one of the more prolific mentioned classic examples of, of the Belgian triple style. Uh, they are out of Pennsylvania, um, regionally distributed, so you can definitely find that in more places than your local down the street brewery. Um, but that's a great, great one to calibrate with if you're purchasing. A beer from the U.S. and then you know you have your classic Belgian brewers. West Mall Triple is one of the classics. If you're studying for you know sitting for a beer test on BJCP or Cicerone side, you certainly should include that in the mix to make sure that you're calibrating. Yeah, well that's cool. And then um, just when you do the BJCP, whatever the the home, the, the homebrew competition is going to be really exciting this year. I'm sure now that you're a part of it, um, we've we've known a couple winners um, from it. What's the name of the American Homebrew Association homebrew competition? National Homebrew Competition. I love that. <laughs> and, uh, we're, and again, our show in January, we're going to talk more about that because it, it's really so exciting. Um, and, and I know like we, some of us have read Charlie Papazin's book and, and all that. Can you just tell us what, what's the name of his book? Because he, he definitely inspired a lot of this, didn't he? Sure. And Charlie Papazian inspired me, definitely one of my mentors. And he lives, if we were doing this visually, 15 minutes out my window. 
Um, <laughs> and I've, I've recently spoken with him and I'm getting ready to brew one of his Hoppy Pills recipes to honor his work in what he did before me um, to grow the entire hobby of home brewing and uh, also, you know, contributed to the craft beer movement because of all that. So it's called his amazing prolific book, Millions of Copies Sold, is the, um, the, the joy of homebrewing. Right, the complete joy of homebrewing, Charlie Papazian. Wow, that's great. So now that brings us to be, to books. So you mentioned one book that's kind of essential that if you're given a book for the holidays or you want to just brush up on your your beer library, I would say so. It's the complete joy of homebrewing by Charlie Papazian. And um, Gerard, is there is there a book that that you'd recommend uh, for someone's for your holiday stocking, even if you have it? Man, I don't read books. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you just read just, the fingers, right? That's yeah. I just I don't know. Find a newsletter you like. Subscribe to it. Dave Infante fingers. It's good. Destroy your eyeballs by staring into a screen all day, like I do. Really, you don't have a book? <laughs> I mean, I don't read about beer that often. I do enough reading about beer online, but um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I have eighteen month old daughter. She doesn't let me read books other than. No, it's okay. uh, well, you did. You did read. You did. Catch us up with Jack Kerouac. On the I'm last still episode. in the middle of of the town in the city. I'm about 250 pages into a 600 page book, and I don't know if I'll ever finish it. And was that that was his first book? Yeah, and it's about wool. You know, as a couple of guys that grew up in Massachusetts has been pretty nostalgic, but uh, it's not the same as on the road. Let's just say that. Yeah, first books. Wow. Well, I'm gonna give a shout out this year. We had we had two new books that were, I believe, the publication was delayed, definitely on um, Tim Webb. And Stephen Beaumont's World Atlas of Beer, uh, third edition. We we did a show with them, and the, and the note was they're calling it, I calling it, the edition three point one because they said, but it was delayed so much that by the time they were finishing it, um, they actually re- had more revisions, and that was a really special book. And then of course Jeff Alwars, the Beer Bible, the the next edition, whatever is out, um, th- those are two that I think for everyone who's a beer lover. You need both of those on your shelf, and um, and Jesse, your book. What, what's coming out in May third? Okay, more time. it's called. I'm going to say it again. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but a tasty mouthful. Snackable bakes, 100 easy peasy recipes for exceptionally scrumptious sweets and treats, and it's available for pre order. So wherever you buy your books, um, you can get online and order a copy. Jesse, can I hear that one more time, just for me? Sure. <laughs> Snackable bakes, 100 easy peasy recipes for exceptionally scrumptious sweets and treats. And it's on Amazon or bookshop.org or, you know, Barnes and Noble, Target, all of them. Okay. So Thank Jesse, you. holidays are coming. Yes. I need to go into my snack drawer. Yep. <laughs> What's a quick recipe uh, that I can make up? Cause my daughter's coming back from college on Saturday. Oh. A, a quick snacky recipe. Yeah, and then something that like a few like of these mainstream snacks that seems to be in everyone's dessert now. Yeah, well, so I just developed a recipe for um, an online food site called The Kitchen, and that recipe is for snack snack drawer bars. And essentially, there's a kind of old school recipe. Maybe some of you guys have tried one. They're called um, seven layer bars or magic bars. And it's essentially a graham cracker crust with some sweetened condensed milk layered with um, some nuts and some chocolate and um, my, and some coconut. But I have done 
a kind of twist on that, because as Jimmy pointed out, I, I am at times the vintage baker and, and twisting <laughs> old recipes. So I twisted that old recipe and turned it into a snack bar or snack drawer bar. Uh, and I changed out, I switched out the graham cracker crust for a pretzel crust. And then I layered the bar with, um, I still kept the coconut, but I layered the bar with Cheez-Its, more pretzels, and potato chips. And then there's some sweetened condensed milk and a lot of chocolate. And might sound a little scary, but I promise you that if you are of the sweet and salty, or if you're in the sweet and salty club and you kind of like that vibe and you like kind of crunchy, um, these bars are for you. Wow, and I think, your daughter, like, uh, I think your daughter will love them. And uh, Christina to 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 Tosi's um, milk bar Com sounds yeah, like compost her compost cookie. Yeah, yeah. totally. Totally. Well, Julia, one more, one more for you now. So this kind of <laughs> composty snack drawer dessert with the pretzel crust and chips. Um, you got a beer for us for that? Yeah, wow. I listened to every detail with such intent. I, I know made, you did. I <laughs> that, um, super young and fun. And my mind quickly goes to, although when I fall asleep tonight, I will probably have a backup uh, style to suggest to, <laughs> to the crickets that are listening to my head at night. But, um, you know, an American brown ale, uh, I want something that doesn't dominate that too much, that is somewhat sessionable. So it's really, a, you know, a palatable, refreshing beer pairing as opposed to domination. Um, and the fact that American brown ales are not too hoppy, you don't have to worry about too much bitterness in the equation, and they're really not going to have a lot of essence of those American, either the tropical notes from American hops or what I call the forest, right? Spruce, spruce juniper, pine, or guava, passion fruit, etc. It's really more about the malt, and those pale malts in the American brown ale are going to work their way with the 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 chips in that, the pretzels, right? That's all coming from from flour that really has been salted up um, and baked or fried to give it that kind of texture and flavor. And I, I think it's, I think it could be a really good pairing. Wow. That sounds, you know, th that's my favorite pairing so far. Um, I'm also drinking. So talking about craft malt, since you mentioned it, I'm going to have a shout out to the craft malt conference is if you're in the Northeast, it's February 18th and 19th in Portland, Maine, which is exciting because I haven't been to Portland in about 30 years. And I'm going to be there, and we're going to work with the local maltster there. Blue Ox Malt, and there's Allagash. I think we're going to host a happy hour party. But right now I'm drinking uh, Northeastern uh, local malt. Valley Malt is up in Massachusetts. friend of ours, and uh, this brewery outside of Boston is Exhibit A. They're a huge supporter of Valley Malt. And I'm drinking right now the Exhibit A Briefcase Porter, American Porter, which is jam-packed with all these Valley Malt local malts. Custom roasted malts in this beer, brown malt, chocolate wheat, and chocolate malt. So um, could you think that I could substitute the, the the American porter for the brown ale, Julia? Or is well, it you just why would you do that when you can do both, Jimmy? Oh yeah. <laughs> I get that. Thank you. <laughs> but um and I was I am actually I'm gonna jump talk about one other highlight of 2021 for me was we did a lot more shows about craft malt. And actually, the same way I met Gerard, I've been a member of the North American Guild of Beer Writers since last year. And uh, with Kate Bruneau and Brian Roth, they've had some really great newsletters. And that's how I actually learned about Gerard, his Jack Kerouac article. And I got introduced to Jesse Boussard and um, the Craft the Malt, uh, Malt Maltsters Guild. Um, 
So I'm just, we did some great stories with people from Alaska and Pacific Northwest, as well as the Northeast. And um, it's kind of exciting for me. I, I do think that what's the next step? I'm going to, I'm going to, this is my pitch for the end of the year. I really don't want to hear about hard seltzers, even though I know it's it's part of business, but I do want to hear more about craft malt. And I just love, Julia, that you wrapped it up with mentioning malts in, in a beer as an important part of it. So um, on that note, final final statement, how important are malts to home brewers and anything else you want to say about malts for home brewers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, malt uh, is usually a um, converted grain, right? So malt is a process. The actual ingredient would be a grain such as barley, such as wheat, such as rye, um, et cetera. So that's important to mention, but the, the malting without that process of those grains does not allow you to make beer. You're literally tricking the grain to think it's spring, having it germinate, and then allowing it to become accessible to produce sugars that then the yeast will eat to produce alcohol and CO2. So with that, malt is beer. Um, I don't want to get in a fight with anyone. Yes, hop for a beautiful, <laughs> glorious edition and came along in the 1400s. Before that, we were much more Gruet-centric with you know herbs and spices, serving that counterbalance to the residual sugar of malt to uh, balance it out with some tannins and as well as bitterness. But malt all the way, baby. You, you can't brew without having malted grains. Great, great statement. And then, Gerard, back to your article about the union brewer with the lager. You mentioned that little snapshot of his where he was. You mentioned a book that I love. It's called The Home Brewer's Garden, which is by two brothers up in Maine. And then when Julia talks about gruettes, I remember their book talks about, you know, you could be growing ginger and dandelions and other bittering agents. Um, did you purpose – I mean, you wrote the article, so – do you know the book Homebrewer's Garden? Because you did write it, mention it in the article. I, I mean, I just thought it was an intriguing detail. As I've already exposed myself on this podcast, I have not read the book. Um, <laughs> but I did think it, you know, I like the idea of the utilitarian value that, you know, he's bringing in. And, and it, I thought it was congruent with his position within the union. All right. And then is, is there a, any other brown, brown ale or porter you want to give a shout out to? to go with the um, snack drawer bar. You know, I, I, I like the I'm idea. Crazy. I like the idea of, first of all, listening to you guys talk about cooking has been like just activating my imagination so much. I do not cook like this and it has been very satisfying. So thank you all very much. Um, but I, you know, I'm more of the mind that if you're going to do a pairing, you should do something that kind of compliments and gets out of the way. So I would love to try a cream ale with that. I'm a big fan of the cream ale. I think it's super underrated style, um, really bridging that sort of macro and micro area um, since, you know, the oven of corn. And we have we have a brewery here called Castle Danger. They make a great cream ale called Castle Cream Ale. We served it at my wedding. It was gone by 7 p.m. Well, how long was the wedding? <laughs> it went later than that. Yeah. All right. We had about five hours of no cream ale after that, so six hours. Oh, there, so. Well, um, we, we mentioned a lot of great beers. This is one of, one of my favorite shows and a great way – to wrap it up guys and i will say ha having been I, I got into this industry as as a chef and restaurant owner for me so much time has been spent when i'm cooking is when i usually drink and i don't drink to excess but i like to, to drink my beer when i'm cooking and um so this is always fun for me talking about, about beer and, and and cooking and all that stuff so you guys are great julia congratulations 
welcome. We are so proud that you're going to be this dynamo with American Homebrewers Association because I'm sure you'll tell us in our next show that that this is the the core of of so much of of what our industry is about. And um, Jesse, so now the easy peasy, <laughs> easy peasy Baker. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's how you'll, the, that's how you'll talk about the next. And time. what I love, thank you for correcting me before the show because I was still calling you the vintage Baker. That's okay. And then Gerard, my. Uh, you're my go-to guy now, man. Thank you. Um, I really, again, thank you to the North American Guild of Beer Writers and Kate Perno and Brian Roth, who uh, mentioned your Jack Kerouac article. And um, we're going to do a lot more shows in 2022. So everybody is working. Cheers. Yeah, man. Cheers, everybody. If you got a glass, I got the Exhibit A briefcase porter. <laughs> Put it up. Is anyone drinking something that they didn't mention? Not yet. <laughs> Which one, Julia? What you going to drink right now? Oh, um, well, I'm going to a happy hour at a local establishment that I haven't been to in our little town of Lyons where Oscar Blues started. So I don't know what I'm going to drink yet, but I hope they have some kick-ass uh, craft beer on draft or <laughs> in a bottle. Awesome. And if they know you're coming, they're going to run out and make sure they have it, right? And uh, Jesse, what were you drinking again? The Grim what? I'm drinking the Grim Butterfly Door. All right. Double yeah, India Pale Ale. And Gerard, I think you mentioned quite a few of yours too. What's what I love about that you're in Minnesota, it's like you got almost like you're dropped in this place where I don't know anything about. <laughs> and it's it's we're look other than Surly, I've I've heard of Surly before. So whatever yeah, I mean, we're, we're we're rambling, but <laughs> that's Thanks, kind of man. that's how I started. Now it's it's all I ever drink. So you know, I'm having myself a, a steel toe size seven IPA. Very classic beer out of St. Louis Park, Minnesota. I should probably start drinking beer that's not made here exclusively, but uh, maybe in 2022. <laughs> no, you, you know, you're doing great, but thanks so much guys. And so big thanks to Julia, Jesse and Gerard for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to our engineer, Armin Spengen and our intern, Junie Terry. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Happy New Year, guys. Woo. All right. Yeah, baby. <laughs> beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.